like sex is sex is an important conversation that I think we gloss over by talking about just what feels good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really nuanced, like how sex is showing up because of your trauma, how sex is showing up um, because of your success, mm -hmm. how success is showing up because of your depression and your mental health in, um, issues, like how sex is showing up because of uh, your, your job, right? Like, What's up everybody and welcome to the Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley, and I'm so happy you came by. The Queerly Black Show aims to normalize the everyday existence of Black, LGBTQIA plus individuals through an interview-style series with regular folks like you and me. So every week, a new guest shares their story and unique perspective on their existence as an LGBTQIA plus individual. Thank you for tuning in, and make sure you subscribe, download, set your reminders to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley. I'm joined today with a very special guest, Mr. Ian, coming out of Houston with this fly shirt on. Ian, tell the people about yourself. Yes. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for inviting me into this space. Uh, so my name is Ian Haddock. I live in Houston, Texas, from a small town called Lamarck, Texas, by way of Texas City, Texas. So I'm a Texas boy through and through, a thoroughbred, if you would and uh love texas love my work here uh i most notably lead uh the normal anomaly initiative an organization focused on overcoming barriers ending stigma and problematic narratives to actualize a new normal we like to say we um change people's stories we used to tell stories now we change people's stories and then i also serve as the president of our local chapter of impulse group which is an international gay men's organization that focuses on connecting, supporting, and engaging gay men globally. Awesome. That's that's incredible, man. Um, so we gonna we're gonna jump right in and we're gonna go back to the beginning. Um, when was your what was your first uh encounter with your sexuality? I I can't remember a time when I wasn't gay. Um I think <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> I think that I think that um Interestingly enough, and I was thinking about this as I was listening to other episodes and things like that that you've done, and I was thinking about, like, I think it was harder for me to think of a time that I considered myself fluid, um, and that was a much more interesting thing, um, just because ever since I could remember, um, my uncle had these books, he was a reader, and so he would have these books that um, they were very sexually explicit books, not necessarily Playboy, but actual like books that you read. And I remember reading one of his books and it was talking about heterosexual sex. And I was just so enthralled by this idea of like a man, even in reading the book, not having language. And this is me still in his books at like six or seven when I first learned, learned to read. Um, but over time, like, I just always connected myself as like different. Um, I was a more feminine, um, definitely more feminine than I am now. I was a very feminine, uh, kid. Uh, I like very, um, whimsical flamboyant things. You know, I like dance and I like singing and not that that has to be, um, equated to being queer but it was just very 
feminine. Um, and I was always like a big burly guy. Um, so it was like just Texas a fed. lot of Texas <laughs> fed, Texas fed, yes. And so I was always, always um, just really trying to figure out what the language was. Um, and I, and, and like I said, I think thinking back and really considering it, I realized how fluid I was because I was also um, attracted to all like genders. I think I was always uh, attracted to both ends of the spectrum, but when you're different, right? Um, when you are a feminine young black gay guy in the country part of Texas, um, you're relegated to a particular thing. And so my mom didn't let me play football until I was in eighth grade, right? She didn't let me get into sports, go outside, learn how to swim, those kind of things, because I was a little dainty. Um, and so really, I think my first true concept of sexuality was realizing, hold on, I like both of these things and not necessarily uh, genders or sex or sexuality, but like, I like all of these things. And so now what do I call a person that, that likes those things? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, as you were growing up, so did your mom, did you talk to your mom about your sexuality at all that early being like, uh, you know, if, if you were, you know, more feminine, usually like with a boy, especially, you know, there's some like, you can't do that. You got to play with chucks or like, there may be these things. Did your mom ever say anything to you about it? So, you know, everybody knew, nobody told me. Mm. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, it came out in different ways. And I often say, like, when I tell my mom's story, she passed away in 2012, which I, you know, definitely have dealt with. So we definitely don't have to, you know, go around having that mm -hmm. conversation. But she passed away in 2012. We ended up being the best of friends and talking about everything and really getting a lot out. But when I tell my mom's story, often she looks like a villain. But I want to preface by saying that she only had language and knowledge of what she had. And so it's not giving her an excuse, but it's kind of like setting the stage for some of the things that I'll talk about um, in my childhood. So my mom was a cursor. She could, she would, she cursed like a seller, a, a sailor, as uh, people would often say. Mm -hmm. um, and so she used her words when she didn't have words. She used the only words that she could use. Um, and so I was a faggot and a sissy from very young. Uh, I didn't. I don't know if I ever recognized because my mom was a very aggressive, dominating, um, sometimes very angry person just about life. Um, I don't ever, I don't know if I realized that she was, um, being, uh, saying something derogatory, mm -hmm. uh, for a long time when I was a kid, I just thought, okay, well, that's the language, you know, you're feminine. So you're a faggot, you're a sissy. Um, I didn't realize that it was a problem until my brothers started getting in on it, um, and really trying to you know, make me a man. I can remember this one time, uh, my brother had a Delta 88 and we were driving. So Texas city is, uh, the mainland part of Galveston. So mm -hmm. it's the last thing that, that is on land before you go across the Island. And so we, that's where we would like learn everything. So he, we were, he was teaching me how to drive, um, <clears throat> on the back roads by Texas city dike. And I don't mean that in a derogatory place. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but Texas City Dyke. So we were driving uh, on the back roads. And I remember I was driving pretty well. Um, but he kept on saying, you know, you're hitting the brake too hard. You're hitting the brake too hard. So I was easing on the brake. Everything was going well. But I was driving like with two hands on the steering wheel, with my back straight. I wanted to seat up. And every time I would sit up too hard, too hard he would slap me in the back of my head I'm sorry um and he would just slap me upside my head and I was like you know brother why are you hitting me he was like you are driving very feminine sit back sit back so I would sit back and he's like put one hand on the steering wheel I had one hand on the steering wheel I'm like it's hard to control <laughs> it's hard to control if it's only one hand I'm still trying to learn but every time I would put that other hand up he would slap me up upside my head uh and then finally like we were listening to zero a popular artist here at the time still popular but really popular during that time we were listening to zero and i knew nothing about the music uh because i was a church queen and uh <laughs> <laughs> and we were listening to zero and i i didn't know how to bob my head correctly like you're supposed to bob your head real slow and you know i just kind of i didn't know how to do all of that and so he would pop me upside my head every time i did something um, every time I did something that he felt was feminine, he would hit me. And so I didn't really learn how to drive till I was like 23 or 24, because I was so traumatized thinking I can't drive. And it really wasn't the fact that I couldn't drive. It was the fact that I wasn't masculine enough mm. in the things that he was teaching me. So yeah. that's when it started to really come up for me, um, is when my brothers got involved and was noticing the femininity and kind of in very passive aggressive um microaggressions uh showing me that this is not the way yeah yeah um do you remember like was that a part of because you present very much very mas masculine um what was that journey back to kind of from a what you would consider um a more feminine kid you know to presenting more masculine you know I one, one, you know, this is hindsight. In hindsight, I don't know if I was actually very feminine, mm -hmm. right? I think I was feminine for a trap house, which is where we lived, right? Um, so that's one thing, but that was feminine to me. That's, you know, that's the lens that I saw myself in. Um, and for a long time, I saw myself in. But I, I would also say uh, societal norms have played a part in this. I've always had a deep voice. I've always been like this country you know, Texas fed, thoroughbred kind of guy. Um, but I think that over time, um, I have just grown up and being an adult for me has become more masculine. Um, when I first came out, I was like, you know, can I curse on here? Yeah. Uh, I, okay. Um, <laughs> when I came out, I was shaking my ass at the club. Uh, when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, sneaking in the club, and um, people just created a, a, a narrative about who I was and how I presented. Um, I was, you know, slimmer and younger and a twink and people were like creating a narrative for me. Um, and one day, you know, for a little while, I went back home for like just a week. I only lived back home for about a week <laughs> once I left at 16. Mm -hmm. um, but I went back home and I saw my brother and I kind of understood his, um, I kind of understood his personality more because coming to Houston and being around a, 
a wide spectrum of like queerness, you know, gay women, gay men, trans women, trans men. Um, and I was able to see like, oh, there is a spectrum of like presentation. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of understood his presentation a little bit more. Oh, you had the grill, he had, um, he had the braids, he had the beard. Um, he at that time wore tall tees, he wore J's. And I was like, oh, I see that now. Like I get it. Um, and I also see how people respect people in my world, in my new world. I see how people respect people that look like that. And so really it was about me putting on drag. That's what I tell people. <laughs> I put on drag one day. And when I say drag, I don't mean like women clothes. I mean the opposite. I put on very masculine clothes. I got the grill and I got the tall tee. I still have the picture too. I'm a, um, when this comes out, I'll post it, uh, post the picture as a throwback. Uh, because I had went in full drag and everybody just changed their perception overnight. Like all of a sudden I was the boy, I was trade. Before you knew it, I was going to get tattoos. And really, you know, as crazy as it is, and this is, I'm literally processing this as we're talking, mm -hmm. I literally began to emulate my brother mm -hmm. in the weirdest way. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. That's wild. In in going to because so Texas, I want to talk about like Texas just real quick, right? So you were from a like a more country town, mm -hmm. and then moving to Houston is like the major city. What is the acceptance of 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 queerness in Texas outside of Houston? <sighs> So where I'm from, people, if you went to the town, you wouldn't say it was country, mm -hmm. uh, especially from what people think Texas is. It is, it would be what I would consider in terms of placement and how Texas, how big Texas is and how large Houston is, because Houston, like Houston is bigger than some states, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so Texas City is like a suburb of the suburbs, if that makes sense. So it's right outside the suburbs of Houston. And so I have a very um, different perspective um, outside of Houston in general, outside of major cities, what you'll find in terms of the political landscape, and that can tell you a whole lot about the state in general, outside of the political land, in the political landscape, um, all of the urban areas, so El Paso, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, um, some would say at some point Laredo, uh, all of those are very democratic, very. Um, they would be considered extremely progressive for the South. Anywhere outside of those urban areas are Republican, which is why we're a Republican state. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, a, it is very, very dichotomous in nature right? Um, you, it's very don't ask, don't tell outside of Houston. Um, they don't care unless you say it, right? Um, and if you say it, as long as you allow them to taunt, oppress, um, in some ways disrespect you emotionally uh, and verbally, then you're good. <laughs> um, but if you are, if I walk 
now if I walk through Lamarca, Texas City with dope black gay, it's different because of privilege. But like in general, if I wore this, you know, out in the public in Lamarck, I probably would get, you know, something thrown at me. Um, I definitely would have as my as 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 the the kingpin, the the dope kingpin's little brother, uh, I definitely would get you know, if I'm walking down the street, somebody would definitely pull over, step out the car and, you know, have a very aggressive conversation. But I also don't think, you know, I don't, I also don't think that we're far away from that here in Houston. Um, you know, Texas is still, although I'm not trans, but it's, it's relative to this conversation. Texas is deemed the transgender murder capital of America. And so, you know, all queerness has to be um, like validated, and if any queerness is invalidated, then uh, that that means I'm at I'm at risk for the same yeah. thing. So um, I don't think that we're too far away from it. I think uh, as people, I was talking to this lady from um, California yesterday, and I think she's from like the Valley or something like that, and she was saying the Valley in California is um is is texas right california is like houston neither one of them is really progressive but they perform well mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense uh i think it's interesting you you highlight that because texas i know does have a pretty um progressive uh queer scene it's a big place and you know obviously all people exist but you know, I've been to Texas a few times <laughs> and, you know, you see a lot of big trucks and just like, you know, at the time, uh, you know, you got the Trump flags and the just a lot of things that are not, you know, accepting. Um, and so it's always interesting to me when you can find space uh, in a place that's like that, right, where, you know, if you step outside of a line you could be in true danger, you know, like if you, you know, veer too far off one side, you know, of the highway, you could really be in trouble. Um, and so how is it existing in a place like that? Um, and then, and then we can just naturally talk about the initiative um, that you have and how that has helped with people, you know, finding space, um, finding comfort and navigating, you know, such a tough, uh, you know, demographic. Um. Yeah, so it's 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 a very interesting space. Um, a couple months ago, my best friend lived in Dallas, and Dallas is a three and a half hour drive. Um, so we we drive to Dallas like people drive from you know New York to Philly, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's I mean it's just you do it. Mm -hmm. It's fun. You go to a different yep. city, right? Um, so heading to Dallas, um, there are a couple of different situations that you go through. Um, one of them being that as soon as you get outside of Houston, and I'm not saying outside of the suburbs, I'm talking about when you get to the suburbs, um, and it may still be there now, cause this was three months ago. Uh, there's a huge Trump sign, uh, still there. Uh, driving to New Orleans, which is going east um, of, of Texas, um, going east of Houston, um, 
there's a town, um, forget what they call them, but uh, the towns that you do not stop in if you're black, right? Um, so it's a very, very, very interesting place um, at the intersection of being a person of color, me being black and, uh, and queer. Um, what we focus on uh, in my work and you know my team and my colleagues, we focus on the opportunities. Um, all of our work centers what we call the movable middle. Um, we don't do a we we do allyship work to some extent, but we really focus on the people in the middle, not just the people in the middle, but the people in the middle that really are ignorant, really don't have knowledge. Um, Texas is so large that lots and lots and lots of people um, don't even go outside of a 30 mile radius in their life. Mm -hmm. My family, my family, um, Texas City is no more than I don't know, 30, maybe 40 miles away. Um, my, I, I, got my, I got my home, I bought my home last year. My family still hasn't seen it. My family has not, only one person in my family has ever been to any of my places, apartments or otherwise, <laughs> um, in Houston, ever, right? Um, outside my mom before she passed away. And so like people literally stay in their bubble. And for that reason, they may never know what's outside of it. Real quick, a, a, a quick story to document how difficult it is. So my aunt is now my maternal figure. Uh, one of my best friends, we talk almost every day for several hours a day. And during Trump's reign, um, <laughs> she was on the, she was on the phone, she was on the phone with me and she was just like, I can't believe people are so stupid. Why would they elect Trump? Why would they elect Trump? And I'm just like, yeah, but this is going to show America how it actually is for people at the margins that y'all haven't been able to see. And she was like, I don't get it. So then COVID happened and she got upset about people not wanting to wear masks. Why are people wanting to wear masks? I'm like, We've always told you this. As a Black queer person, I've told you that nobody's safe if everybody's not safe with this Trump situation. And with these masks, we literally have been talking about condom usage all my life, all my queer life, and I still don't use them, okay? So I know, I know some of the complexities of what this looks like, but as much as I hate that we're dealing with this, I'm glad that you're getting it because my aunt is upper middle class, worked all her life, just retired, so on and so forth. Well, we were having a conversation because I told her, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time thinking about this upcoming election. I don't know how I feel. I don't feel like anybody's doing anything really good on my behalf. Um, and I'm changing. Things are changing. My finances are changing. My influence is changing. And I don't want a lot of people. So I'm really just trying to figure this out. This is the first time I talked about this publicly. Mm -hmm. But um, she was so upset. She was so upset, obviously, because my influence is growing. She's like, don't ever say that in public. And I'm just like, but you are just coming into this. And interestingly enough, I told her, I said, I want you to look up who represents you in your district. Mm -hmm. 
and who represents her, unfortunately, is Ted Cruz. So I said, like, <laughs> so I said, with all of that, and that what you haven't realized is that you are just, um, you are just coming into this awareness of all of these complexities and disparities and oppression um, and really stupidity and ignorance. And at least I already knew about Cruz and how terrible he was, but you didn't even know he was representing you. So I say all of that to say like, there are so many people who just don't know because they live in their bubble. And all it takes is that one Trump moment, right? Going to this example. All it takes is that one mask moment for them to begin to formulate an understanding to say, you know what? I didn't get this before, but I get this now. And so that's what we choose to do is to talk to people who can get it now. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. That, that makes a lot of sense. The movable middle. Cause um, I think a lot of us do face people who are just, it, it really is ignorance. It's not for lack of trying. It's not for, uh dismissiveness it's just you just have never had to consider this it's yeah. never been something you've even had to consider and when faced with it they struggle um but having resources like you and your organization help them to understand mm -hmm. so that's that's good I, I i've i've never heard it put that way the movable middle but that's awesome yeah um so talk about some of the things that uh, you guys do, like, you know, in the community and um, what was, if there was, was there a gap that you saw in terms of the community that made you start this organization? Oh, absolutely. So the starting this organization is, uh, it started from a very weird place. I do want to just start by saying very transparently that I didn't get into community work from like academia I got into this work from prostitution <laughs> and so um, as a former sex worker um, I was really just trying to be responsible over my body and to continue to go get tested and things like that and I think at some point uh, my, the first job that I was at was just like Somehow, even though you might be getting other STIs, you're not getting HIV. So we need to figure out why you're not getting HIV and we need to, to find more people like you so we can figure all of this out. So I ended up getting an outreach position um, from like pretty much right off the street. Um, and from that, I just learned and I soaked up a lot of information. And I was able to move through the system um, from frontline to um, coordinator to mid-level to senior level management and um, somewhere around um, somewhere around I, my 26th person um, testing positive um, and I remember this person for many reasons but somewhere around that time um, I realized that we were not changing the world by finding people who were living with HIV um, I've realized we were not changing the world by focusing on Black gay men. I realized we were not changing the world um, by not creating our own spaces um, and curating and cultivating relationships. One of my mentors, Harrison Guy, always says, you can teach people how to write grants. You can teach people 
how to manage funds and you can teach people um, how to create policies. What you cannot teach people is how to create community. Mm-hmm. And one thing about Black queer people is we know how to create community. Oftentimes, we don't get those other those other skills. Mm-hmm. So through my work, I was able to get a lot of those other skills. But what I realized is we, not that people that, you know, test and focus on Black gay men and um, work in white organizations with programs that focus on Black queer people, not that they aren't impactful, but they were not making the impact that needed to be made here in Houston. Um, you know, just statistics that stick out to me, you know, 34% of Black trans women make less than $10,000 a year. You know what I mean? Mm. Statistics that, you know, stick out to me is 40% of homeless youth are LGBT, right? Um, Statistics that, a statistic that really showed me, at least, uh, that we were not doing, that we were not making the impact that we should have um, and this at the time was a projection. It's still a projection, but it could still come true. Um, one in two black gay men will contract HIV in their lifetime. Like if we're doing this work, and at that time I was doing specifically HIV work and public health work. Mm-hmm. If we're doing this work, then why is this still happening? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and at some point I just realized that you gotta be the change you wanna see. So I quit my job at the county I moved into one of the most depressing times in my life, but I moved into what was a garage apartment, but by all means, I'm sure could not have been rented out in other, if it was Mm -hmm. actually uh, rented. Um, But I moved in a friend's garage and I wrote and I thought and I wrote and I thought and um, it was, it was an awful, awful time, but I knew we had to do something different and I had to uh, try to figure it out. I had no idea that we would become this. Um, it was originally like, I love to write. I love to tell stories. So I started out as a blog. Uh, we you know did a couple PSAs. We created some content uh, for like Prime Video and everything was going good, but and the stories were getting picked up. It was just the the fact that we were not tangibly making impact. Yeah. And so just in 2018, no, I'm sorry, in 2020, um, we got an opportunity to write for some direct services money. And um, surprisingly, they gave it to us. And since then, we have grown to over eight programs, nine, I think, maybe. I'm about to name them anyway. Um, so we've grown to center three things, direct services, advocacy programs, and capacity building and research. So under our direct services, um, currently we send out at-home HIV tests. We, don't pro- we provide the HIV tests. We don't do them. We do transportation services and employment services. So um, we can get people to and from uh, job interviews, to and from doctor's appointments. Um, And then we also have a program to connect people with affirming employment. And then we have like uh, um, these advocacy programs and we do advocacy focused on tangible ways to move our community, community forward. 
So we have an entrepreneurship cohort, Project Liberate. Um, and then we have a positive organizing wellness and re resilience focused on people living with HIV and giving them empowerment and tools to advocate for themselves. Uh, and then we have the Trans Allyship Collective, which is a coalition of organizations that want to be better allies to the trans community led by trans folk. And then um, finally, we do capacity building and um, research. So our capacity building focus, focuses on DEI work and sex positive uh, organization building. And then we do some work with the HIV Prevention Trials Network. That's awesome. Yeah, so, wow, that's, 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 a, <laughs> that's a long way from where you started. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean a long way from where you started what briefly just since you mentioned it I didn't know that um you started this started out of being a sex worker what discoveries did you make while working as mm -hmm. a sex worker you know a couple things one I I realized how much I learned from my brother right uh, my brother as this dope dealer um that really in his mind both of my brothers really in their mind didn't have a way out and had to use what they could that was in their environment to to live um and I saw that even though he hadn't neither of my brothers graduated high school but both of them knew business, right? And they were very serious about business, sometimes too serious about business, but they were very serious about business. So that was- I always say if, if, if I knew a lot of people where I grew up that were uh, drug dealers and that was like a, a very normal thing. And I always say like, man, if, if these people was in charge, we are, we're, because they're some of the smartest people, yep. like I, literally like some of the smart could tell you how to make a thousand dollars out of 10 like yeah. no problem you know so yeah. uh, continue but i i 100 very smart <laughs> yeah, i i just i just told one of my mentors yesterday i said <clears throat> we what if the people that we were around knew how brilliant they were like Seriously. what if they knew what we knew right but um yeah so that was the first thing i realized that i learned a lot from being in that environment uh something else that um i realized is that and i say this this is cliche because everybody says it but sex work really is work <laughs> it, it is mentally draining it's emotionally exhausting um and you know no matter how glamorized it is uh it is a lot it's a lot of work it's actually work that i would never want to do again uh, cause it's, it's a lot of work, honestly, it's, it's harder than McDonald's and what I do now for sure. Um, also I just like realized that lots of people, um, so I've been in sex therapy for, I, I'm no longer in sex therapy. I am in therapy, but I was in sex therapy for like five years. And what I learned in sex therapy is because queerness is so easily conflated to sex, um, people relegate the need to desire sex um, to like being horny 
but really it's the desire for intimacy and connection many times. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I've, what I've realized now um, on the other side of it is how difficult sex work has made being in relationship for me. Um, so when I'm dating somebody and well, I'm often dating somebody, I'm generally not dating for a long time because I'm hypersexual when we meet, uh, cause I'm obviously naturally turned on by them. But once I get connected, I get, I get sexually turned off because I'm used to it being such a, um, transactional relationship. Mm. Very interesting. Is that still, that's still something you yeah, are still challenged something with I now? With. Yeah, still something I struggle with. Yeah. Interesting. Do you, do you think that there's a lot of um, similarities to people, not even that they uh, exchange like sex for money, but sex for sex, right? So like a lot of like um, dating apps, if people are like out there just for sex, once they are like transitioning into I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I don't want to use my body as a trade tool. I want to actually be in a relationship that they have some of the same yeah. challenges. I, and I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to examine, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think, <clears throat> I think two things can be true, right? I think that monogamy is a social construct that we don't necessarily have to live up, up under. If you want to, it's perfectly fine. It's a choice and it's a great choice, but I do believe that it's a social construct that, you know, whiteness has made relevant. And, um, and I believe that we cannot be monogamous because sex is so easy to have. Um, and I think we see that over and over. Um, it is much easier. Um, you know, there's, for instance, there's uh, been guys that extremely attracted to uh, that I have a wonderful time with we go out, we mesh, we connect on so many levels, um, have some of the same interests, no arguments, ease and grace. Uh, they give me my space, they understand my work. Um, and we can cuddle for, you know, two or three nights out the week. That next week, I don't want to have sex with them. But I think that's I think that's the same conversation, maybe not in a, a week, but I think that's the same conversation that I hear uh, with queer women and men and, and, and our other siblings um, when, you know, it's getting old, you know, that person's body is getting old, their body has changed or they're not doing what they used to. No, it's the, it's the comfort of having something that's next and something that's new. It's the excitement of, um, facing that rejection, that possibility of rejection and people, you know, being turned on by you and telling you how beautiful you are, who have no connection to anything. Um, it's, it's the same. I think it's, it's, it's similar experiences. I think I articulate it in this way because one therapy, um, go to therapy y'all, uh, two, yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> two, um, I articulate it in this way because it is, it's a really, it's a thing for me. Um, and although I haven't personally heard people talk about it in this way, I, I'm sure other people- I've never heard it talk. That That's probably gonna be very enlightening because I've never heard that described that way. Like how it, 
manifest itself in your relationships because we talk all the time about like how you know things that uh you know if you were bullied or if you dealt with other things in your you know your past how that could affect you but something that because sex work it's not something that happened when you were a kid like you didn't do that as a you were very much an adult and then you know a few years later now you're trying to get in a relationship and that is something that has impacted your ability to be in relationship I don't think people think about that but I also don't think that people think that having relationships I mean situationships and hookups and you know sleep with this person today and 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 tomorrow and how that same thing can affect you know uh moving forward like I'll think about like uh, some of our favorite examples, heterosexuals, uh, Sierra, who's like, you know, uh, why, why was Russell, this whole narrative around why her relationship with Russell was so different. And she essentially what she traded for was different. She didn't, she didn't have sex with him. (laughs) You know, they, they're, they're the foundation of Mm -hmm. them was centered on something else. The, I guess my summary is how big sex is, like how much of a factor it is. It can be both positive and negative, depending on how it showed up for you at different well, points. You know, it's it's very interesting that you bring that up because again, I am a <laughs> I am a chest full of oxymoronic statements, mm-hmm. right? Um, which I think adds to my complexity, right? But <clears throat> I was As we through, all are, by the yes, way. We all are, right? I was going through a situation where I did wait. Um, I said, I'm going to wait. This guy is amazing. Still amazing guy. Super amazing guy, um, both on paper and personally. Had a little bit of, you know, a needy spirit. Um, and that made him a little whiny. But other than that, that's all good. Because I like a little bit of, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um but we waited and, you know, he met my chosen family. He met some of my, my uh, biological family, um, holidays, all this kind of stuff. So we finally had sex and it was awful. Hope you're not listening, baby. Um, I don't know if he knew it was awful, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it was awful. Not that he was bad at sex. He, he just had, um, he just, he just didn't have what I wanted sexually um and it's not top bottom things i know y'all trying to figure it out but can't say too much he's gonna listen um but he he wasn't bad at sex he wasn't good to me Mm -hmm. right and um i went to my friends who range age groups but you know all you know um pretty successful you know educated people and i'm just like so sex can't be this important because he checks all the boxes. So like, why would I not talk to somebody who checks all the boxes just because the sex isn't that great? Like, can I teach this person sex? And to my surprise, gay men, gay women, trans women, it's about 12 of them. It was like, no, sex is like one of the most important things. It like, is important. Right? If you're not having good sex, then how are you going to be with somebody? Right, it's very important. And so it's just, it's, it's a really weird place to be in um to like sex is sex is an important conversation that i think we gloss over by talking about just what feels good mm-hmm. um and it's really nuanced like how sex is showing up because of your trauma how sex is showing up 
um, because of your success, mm -hmm. how success is showing up because of your depression and your mental health in, um, issues, like how sex is showing up because of uh, your, your job, right? Like all of those things when we're talking about relationships and, and hooking up, because for me, you know, hooking up is easy because that person doesn't expect me, at least it's changing and it needs to change. But before um, hooking up was very fun because my presumption or assumption was that that person did not know me. And so then you didn't hold me to a standard of what I desired to do sexually, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it complicates it when you're talking about actually desiring um, an adult relationship. Yeah. Uh, what, how, how long have, what's the longest relationship you've been in? Four years. Nice. And how did you guys talk openly about sex? Uh, we didn't talk openly about anything, which is why it lasted four years. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk openly about anything. Um, I was, uh, I was probably his, um, first actual, actual relationship. Um, and he was my first relationship after several years. And I, I find myself using some of the language that he used that used to bother me, but I'll never forget he told me um, to just kind of give you a, a concept of how the relationship was. Um, I was, I said, I took him out to dinner one night and I was just like, hey, I know things have been a little rough for you personally and, you know, I haven't made them easier, but it's because I'm having feelings that I haven't had in a long time. And I'm letting you know I'm falling for you and I would, you know, like for us to start talking about, you know, making things official. And he was like, but why do we need to make an announcement to each other that it's official? Why can't it just happen naturally? And so for four years, I was in a natural relationship that had no title. Um, and that's really kind of like how the relationship um, progressed. And at first, it was something that grinded my gears to no end. Um, but at probably year two, it was the best thing because I didn't have, he didn't have accountability. I didn't have accountability. Um, and it was really toxic. It was, um, it wasn't toxic. Like people think, people think that's the point I wanted to get to, right? People think that, uh, relationships, if you are, if you got a job and you got a car and you have a place to stay and you're a good person and you're nice and you hang out with people, that is, um, that is what makes a person good for a relationship. No, that makes a person an adult. Mm -hmm. Very much. So. <laughs> that makes a person an adult. And so I was, um, I was in an adult friendship for four years that I called a relationship. Mm -hmm. So now looking for an actual relationship, um, that sets boundaries and has parameters and holds each other accountable with conversations regarding tough things is what I desire. And so that is, uh, that's not as easy as finding somebody that's cute. <laughs> I got it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, wow. This was good. This is really good. Um, change your topics a little bit we're getting close to the end um if you had a theme song for your life what would it be uh so i i alluded to the fact that i am a church queen 
I love church. I don't like Christians, but I love church. Uh, so um, a theme song at the moment, last week it would have been like um, Down Below by Roddy Rich. But this week it is, <laughs> this week it is Thank You For Being God by Travis Green. Awesome. That's what's up. Yeah. yeah. That's dope. Yeah, man. I think I, I, I go, I've been going back and forth. I, I, mine's is probably a 50 cent hustler, hustler's ambition, <laughs> <laughs> but, but swap out the, swap out the, uh, the drugs for just for success in life period. Yeah. And that's probably, that's probably my life. I ask everybody what's one piece of advice you have for somebody who might be going through their own journey. <sighs> one piece, one piece of advice um hmm. one piece of advice that i would give people that might be going through their own journey is uh it's worth it it's worth it um and i think about all kind of things that i've i've dealt with and am dealing with uh and am going through but then I think about, you know, my friend who is not out, who I have urged to say, it may never be time to come out. Um, and I think about one of my good friends and colleagues that I work with every day, who's a beautiful trans woman who um, has her things going on as a trans woman. And the power is in hope. <laughs> Um, this world is not kind, especially to marginalized people, but we have each other and in us, we have hope. Like I didn't meet you until Instagram and we are on this podcast talking like the best of friends will probably be connected forever For and sure. ever, right? And that's community. That's what community does. And so it's worth it. <laughs> 100% what I would give it's worth it yeah thank you man that that's that's good it, it's totally worth it just to <laughs> be hated for who you are and love for who you're not because yeah. that just only eats you up so I, I think that's that's awesome well great tell the people where they can find you yeah absolutely so uh you can find me on social media myself at enl haddock um on all platforms except for twitter because Twitter makes me want to look at nasty stuff, so I don't have one. Um, but you can, more importantly, follow my organization, The Normal Anomaly. It's uh, The Normal Anomaly on Instagram and Facebook and underscore Normal Anomaly on Twitter. Awesome, man. Well, this is another episode of The Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley. I'll catch y'all on the next one. <laughs>